Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. I know many of you knew my father as an officer. You may have seen him in his uniform with a badge and a squad car, but I saw my dad in a different fashion, always in his plaid pajama pants, book in hand, in his silver Ford F-150. Home has felt lonely without him here. I keep waiting for him to pull up in the driveway to come inside and tell us about some crazy car chase he got into. Or maybe even how terrible the 7-Eleven taquitos were for lunch. <laughs> you never knew it was always a surprise what he had gotten into that day. However, there was no heavier surprise than to receive a call that your dad had been shot and killed. It will be a day I never forget. I remember having conversations with my dad about him losing friends and officers in the line of duty. I have heard all the stories you can think of, but I've always had such a hard time with how the suspect is dealt with. Not that I didn't think there should be justice served, but my heart always ached for those who don't know Jesus. Their actions being a reflection of that. I was always told that I would feel differently if it happened to me, but as it's happened to my own father, I think I still feel the same. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion, and part of me wishes I could despise the man who did this to my father, but I can't get any, of, any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. I thought this might change if the man continued to live, but when I heard the news that he was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road, I'd get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, simply to tell him about Jesus. Should have known better than to show that clip and try to say anything after it. But that's it. Her name's Shelby Houston. Her dad was killed by a man who was in the middle of a domestic abuse situation. And when he walked in a situation, the man shot him and then turned the gun on himself. Her dad was killed. A police officer died in the line of duty. But that man, the, 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 her dad had invested the gospel into her. And... She then 
had the chance before the world to talk about a passion for seeing people come to know Jesus. I got to hear her this week in person at the Southern Baptist Convention. This was just a few months ago. She has not had the opportunity to actually talk to the man. He, right at, at, at this point, doesn't really want to have a conversation with her. But this moment where she stood up, stood up and talked about the heart that should be in every follower of Jesus to see people come to know him has opened all kinds of crazy doors for her. And she's had the privilege to share with a lot of people, and she has actually been in a couple of prisons standing before other inmates who have done similar things to this man and shared Christ with them. And I was moved and wowed and overwhelmed at that. The heart of a person who understands what is at stake and understands what has been done for them in the gospel. I, I, I think that's the two things that we often lack we lack, first of all, this real understanding of what has really been done for us. I mean, we, we feel like we're pretty good people and that God just took a pretty good person and, and made him or her a little bit better, that I mixed a little religion into a pretty good life and we're blessed and, and, and we don't realize that we were dead and now we live. We were lost and now we are rescued. We were blind, but now we see. We, we don't see the glory of the gospel well. And so we take it for granted and we look at our neighbors and we just go, there's not a whole lot of difference between them. What's the big deal? And part of the reason we get there is we have this, this secure, comfortable version that we are a lot better than we actually are apart from Christ. Do you get what Christ has done for you in the gospel? When we take communion, are you at all that it took the blood of Christ to rescue and redeem you? Do you know how deeply you had fallen and how great your need and the, 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 the absolute blindness of your soul? Do you understand that apart from Christ, in the work of his Holy Spirit, in your own personal like, attempt, you would have chosen self every time, and there is no hope for you apart from the gospel. Do, do you get that? Listen, if we don't stand in awe of that, we're never going to get to this point. We're never going to get to where Philip is. We're not going to get to the point where there isn't a culture of evangelism. If we just think we're a pretty good Eureka people who are just, you know, we kind of have this Christian club and we just have something kind of sweet together and it's kind of nice and we don't realize the depth of our need and the beauty of Christ together, we're never going to get to this. But that also leads to the fact that here we are, because we see ourselves that way, we see our neighbors that way. We just think, okay, they're good people. They're moral people. They help us with our junk, and they, they, they show up, and they're kind to us, and they don't yell at our dogs when they walk by. And, and you know, they, they don't, you know, you know, yell at us when our grass is too tall, which mine is right now. Or, you know, they're good people. They have good families. And, and we don't feel... The depth of need, we can look at Ecuador and go, man, those people need Jesus. But we don't really get it for our neighbors, right? And, and, and in the midst of this, there's something in this amazing story that we need to hear as this guy named Philip has this crazy story. Now, in Acts, kind of the flow of Acts, if we've been together, if you've been with us, we're studying this amazing story of how the gospel started with 120 people and is going to spread to the world. But the way it spreads is spirit-empowered witness. And we hear this idea of preaching the gospel. And I want, I want to get something really clear to you what, what we mean when we say preaching the gospel. Because the tendency is to hear the proclamation of Jesus. And we think, okay, Sunday morning what I do is every week is I get up and preach the gospel. And that is part of what we do. And it's important. It's part of the rhythm of God's purpose in the church. We should do that. But when the New Testament, especially Acts, talks about gospel proclamation... It is sometimes talking about a dude on a stage or in a public place proclaiming, but it is talking about, also talking about one-on-one -on -one conversations. It is to talk about people who in any situation are willing to share their faith with anybody they come into contact with. And that's the Philip guy. 
We, we first met Philip. He was one of seven guys who were full of the Spirit, full of power, who were raised up by this early church in Jerusalem. Because up until last week's sermon, all of Christianity, all that was known of Christianity had taken place in the city of Jerusalem. The church went from 120 people to multiplied thousands. There were priests who were becoming followers of Jesus. They had some, some problems. They had an external issue uh, uh, with, with the potential of false teachers. And God took care of that with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is really crazy and interesting. But we also have this internal pressure of division that was starting to happen in church. And, and the outcome was to raise up these seven guys who were going to be leaders of the church. They were kind of the precursors to deacons of the church, but they were filled with the Spirit. They were already sharing Christ and witnessing in the world. And two of those people become central to the story. The first is Stephen, who becomes the first Christian martyr because he boldly proclaims Christ among people who are like him. But he ends up dying for his faith. And when he dies for his faith, this guy named Saul, who we're going to come back and talk about a lot next week, this guy named Saul starts a persecution in the church. And what happens is this, multiplied, this people have multiplied thousands in Jerusalem now have to scatter their head all over the world. And, and last week, we heard so, so beautifully from Scott Holdegraver, this, the first part of the Philip story, because Acts 8 is ultimately going to follow this guy named Philip, who first goes to Samaria, and he proclaims Christ there. He crosses this cultural, ethnic boundary that nobody else would cross. And he is the first one. Jesus told his disciples, Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus intentionally pointed out Samaria because he was letting these, this band of 12 and this small group of people he was talking to, that their mission would include going to Samaria. But that's radical. To go to Samaria means that we're going to cross, cross a racial, cultural, language boundary that nobody would cross. Samaritans and Jews hated each other with an ethnic hatred that is, like, massive. But, but we find in John chapter 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. They'd already seen, modeled for them what it looked like for their Savior to say, listen, I'm going to go to people that you won't go to. I'm going to share the gospel with people you wouldn't do it with. I want you to see what it's like to be intentional, to go to people that are different, who maybe your background and story has taught you to hate them, to see them differently, to see them as weird. But Jesus went to Samaria, and now Philip is the one, not the 12. It's very interesting when this happens. It is Philip, when they are scattered there's the one that ends up among these people preaching Christ they believe and the Holy Spirit the apostles show up and the Holy Spirit falls on them and there's the visible evidence of the Spirit falling on these Samaritans as they are now included these outsiders these people that nobody will nobody in Jewish life wants to have anything to do with that they hate they are now included in the people of God it's a beautiful story but the Philip story doesn't end there we end up with this crazy story today and, and the reason it's so beautiful, this crazy story is so beautiful, is what we see is this man who is a faithful witness of Christ. He is just somebody who is going to be, like he ends up being known as Philip the Evangelist. More on that in a minute. He's just a guy who is faithful to anywhere he goes. It doesn't matter who the people are. He will cross barriers and go to speak to anybody. He will build friendships and he will share Christ with them for the cause of seeing them. And the reason he does this is, is he really gets what's at stake. He's a man who understands what Christ has done for him. As a religious Jew, he came to realize the depth of his need, the beauty of the gospel, and he trusted in Jesus. And now he realized that the only hope for the world around him is that somebody must tell them. Somebody must make this known. Paul says it like this, how will they know unless somebody is sent? How will they know unless somebody preaches? How will the nations and our neighbors know that there is redemption in Jesus unless somebody goes? And Philip goes, I'm going to be the guy. And so Philip becomes our Star Trek dude. Any Star Trek fans here? Fans here? Anybody like Star Trek? All right. What's the big phrase for Star Trek? What do they do? They, they boldly go where no man has gone before. He is our Star Trek guy. Philip is the guy who says, I will boldly go 
where nobody else has gone before. I am going to be that guy. I'm going to find a way. And so what we have before we get to the first phrase of this text that is beautiful is we have the story of Philip who's already that guy. He already knows what Christ has done. He already knows what it means for others. He knows they need the gospel. And he goes, man, he, he sounds like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 where God speaks to Isaiah and says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah is going like this, me. And Philip is going, send me. Here am I. It is that guy that God chooses to send an angel. So check out the story itself. Check out the story. God chooses to send an angel to him uh, in, in verse uh, 26. And you're like, well, if God sent an angel to me, I would go. Maybe God chooses to send angels to people who are already going. Maybe the reason we don't see power in the supernatural is that we're waiting for God to do something to give me a sign rather than just being obedient to the call to be faithful to make much of Jesus, right? What we see, like this idea of being filled with the Spirit in the New Testament is never tied to, like it's never even really tied to a worship service. Being filled with the Spirit in the, whole, the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is always the engine to to go, that we gather, but that gathering should embolden us and bring us together so that we are willing to go make much of Jesus for our neighbors and to the nations and, and to make the witness of Christ known. Maybe the reason we don't see angels is because we aren't messengers ourselves. And, and so God sends an angel and tells him, here's what I want you to do. Verse uh, 26, the angel of the Lord said, Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down toward, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now here's, here's what's going on. We now have another, another road that nobody from Jerusalem ever wants to travel unless they're doing business. Because it's to the south through a desert. Anybody want to go, go through a desert right now? It's hot, dry, awful. To Gaza. What is Gaza? Gaza is a coastal town that is still in Judea, this region, but it is still inhabited by the descendants of the Philistines. Now, if you read enough Old Testament story, this is Goliath's people. These were the arch enemies of Israel from much of the Old Testament. And again, go that way. We would all go, I don't think so. Listen, the, the, the angel of the Lord spoke to us saying, go hang out in Ferguson. Go hang out in North City. Go hang out among the Bosnians in South City. We would go, man, I don't think I heard the Lord right. I, God wants me to do something like that. Go to your neighbors. Like these hard places that, that we are called, there is a sense in which Philip is like, I will boldly go where no one has gone before. And he just goes, look at the next verse. And so Philip arose and went. See that? Just the beauty of going, I feel this call to go. I'm going. It's what it is. And so he goes, and what he does is he gets there, as, he's, as, he, as he goes, there's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official uh, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, what happens is Luke is enamored with Philip, and he wants to tell us this story. There are some potential outcomes of this story that church history tells, but I'm going to tell you, we really don't know anything beyond this moment about this man. But Philip tells us a lot, or Luke, the author of, of Acts, tells us a lot about this man right there. Several things, first of all. We're told he's an Ethiopian. Uh, Ethiopia is not modern-day Ethiopia, which is near, but it's actually this region called that, that is called Cush. It is south of Egypt, and all through like the African story of history, you have, in North Africa, you have Egypt and Cush uh, in ancient history, who were always battling one another. In fact, there are, if you ever studied Egypt, there are several dynasties of the pharaohs who were actually Cushites, Ethiopians who had conquered and then ruled all of Egypt, and then you would have an uprising of Egyptians who would push them out. But Cush is northern Africa, so what we have is that we have a black African man who is journeyed, but we're told he is, he is also a eunuch. That's not a fun conversation to have, all right? But this means, uh, the, the word literally means he is just single, so it is translated in some places to mean he's just a single dude. But more than likely, the context tells us that he's actually been castrated so he can serve in the royal court of a queen. That way you don't have to worry about him having an affair, to, to commit adultery with the queen, right? And so, he, but he's not just anybody. This guy is the treasurer 
of Candace, who's the queen of the Ethiopians. The name Candace is actually very much like the word Pharaoh to the Egyptian. It is the name of series of, so we're not sure exactly which queen this is, but it is a, a, a royal, either royal mother or royal wife of the king. And he is the treasurer. He is close. He is in the cabinet of the government. He is a high, very high ranking official. But we're also told in the story that he has come to Jerusalem to worship. Here's what this means. Somewhere, some, sometime along the way, he's been exposed to the teaching of the Jewish faith and the one true and living God that is revealed in scriptures. And he has come to, on some level, believe in that God, uh, the one true and living God. And now he has journeyed to Jerusalem so that he can hear and worship this God. But there are two barriers. The first is the Old Testament is very, cute, very clear about people who are not Jewish, cannot enter into the sacred space. But there's also a passage that tells us that people who are eunuchs are never allowed to enter the sacred space of the inner court of the temple. And so from afar, from a little bit of a distance, this man comes to Jerusalem and is worshiping the one true and living God, not fully understanding all that he is worshiping. But he has become, the, the, the phrase in the New Testament is a God-fearer. He is a, a Gentile person, more than likely, who has come to believe in the God of Israel, but is not fully included in the faith of Israel. And now he is on his way home. So he's got a chariot. That means he's got wealth. He's got a chariot. He's also got a copy of the scroll of the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And as he is reading this scroll, the spirit speaks to Philip. Now, I, I don't want to miss this. Don't pause here. Don't skim over this. Notice that the Holy Spirit speaks to people. I do not believe that he has quit speaking. Yes, he speaks through Scripture. And yes, the Holy Spirit is never going to say anything that is a contradiction of Scripture. I also do not believe that the Holy Spirit speaks in ways that are, to us now, that are authoritative outside of Scripture. In other words, there is, on one level, I love when I hear, I feel like the Spirit has spoken to me. On another level, I am very careful not to stand up in front of you and act like what I feel the Spirit is saying to me is the same as what the Scriptures say. It's not. But I do believe that the Spirit still speaks, and very specifically, I believe the Spirit speaks to the hearts of people who are saying, I'm willing, help me find somebody to share the gospel with. I'm willing, send me. I think the Spirit still challenges us and speaks to us and calls us to share the gospel with people. I've had situations where I've just tried to be open to the Holy Spirit, and I wish I was more active in this. I'll talk about this in a little bit in, in just a few minutes, but um, <clears throat> I've had situations where I've been at events or moments and I just felt like the Spirit was speaking to me, and I just started praying, Lord, help me feel a sense of who you want me to share with, who, who, who you'd like me to talk to. Is there somebody here who you are calling me? And I have felt the prompting of the Spirit to say, go speak to that person. I remember being at a youth conference uh, several years ago. I was hanging out, and, and it was a whole bunch of teenagers at this moment. And I just like, Lord, I know there's somebody here. Just help me be sensitive what your Spirit. And I felt the Spirit urging me to this kid who had isolated himself. He's actually a kid, a, a, a teenage boy that I didn't even know. But I walk over and I start having this conversation. And after a few minutes, I was able to lead this boy, to, this young, young teenager, to faith in Christ. Got him connected with his local church. They baptized him. I mean, it was just one of those moments where I felt the prompting of the Spirit. And, and I believe the Holy Spirit, just like Philip, we will seek him. The Spirit still calls us and speaks to us. I think if we will be open to our neighbors, the Lord will lead us to moments where we know how God is shaping our lives. And we should seek the voice of the Spirit in our lives. And so the, Philip, the, the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip and says, go talk to that guy. He's coming by in a chariot. Everything in the moment is wrong. He's in a chariot. I'm on foot. He's, a, he's a, not a Jewish person. He's, you know, he looks like he's a man of wealth. Philip's probably just an ordinary dude. But Philip hears the voice of the Spirit, goes up, and what happens is the man is sitting there reading from this scroll, and he just happens to be in Isaiah chapter 53, okay? And so when he's reading, he's probably reading out loud, and Philip hears him reading this passage that was written 700 years before Jesus, but is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture because what happens in Isaiah 53 is that God inspires the prophet Isaiah to give a vivid description of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on our behalf, like I said, 700 years 
before Jesus died. He was wounded for our, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The iniquity, the, the iniquity that brought us chastisement was up on him. And there's this vivid picture of an innocent person who gets sideways with religious rulers, who is brought before them as a lamb is brought to slaughter, who willingly goes and dies, but he dies not for his own sin. The, the, the people who, who kill him think he's guilty, but before God he is vindicated, and then that one who is crushed and wounded and his blood is spilled out again stands on the last day. This is written 700 years before the time of Jesus, and the prophet Isaiah gives a vivid description of how Christ died, where Christ died, the way Christ died, and the reason Christ died right before us. And this man just happens to be reading this. And as he's reading, Philip runs up behind the chariot. So you got to picture this. He's jogging by the chariot. Chariot's gone. Philip's kind of jogging along. He must have been in good shape, right? Uh, and, and he's jogging by the chariot. And the guy says, uh, or he's reading this, and, and Philip just asks him, uh, hey, man, do you understand this? He's willing to ask him a question. Do you understand this? And the man says, says how can I know unless somebody becomes my guide. The, the, the word here is the idea of somebody who knows their way through a path and will take me through. Believer in Jesus, guess what? If you know what, what the Lord has done for you, and you know where the path leads, you, you can be a guide. How can I know unless somebody guides me? And then he raises a question, who is this about? Is the prophet, is the writer, is Isaiah writing about himself or is he writing about somebody else? And look at how Philip answers this beautiful. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Genesis Church, this is what every person in Eureka needs. It's what every person in our culture needs. There's a quote attributed to this man named St. Francis of Assisi, where he is claimed to have said, preach Christ and when necessary, use words. And there's two massive problems with that. One is that he probably never said it. So if you've ever read it and seen it quoted, attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, that that may or may not be his quote. But the other problem is this, that we are not truly preaching Christ until we actually use our words. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not called to live our lives before a watching world in a way that honors Christ, where we love one another, where we live with, with humility and, and with the fruit of the Spirit and all that kind of stuff. But listen, until we open our mouth and point people to Jesus, we are not truly living out the implications of being a witness for the gospel. And so here's Philip, who opens his mouth and beginning with this scripture. And again, here we are. We've said this over and over again. He, he understands the nature of the scripture. The Bible is about let me say it one more time. For those who've been around for a while, help me out. The Bible is about, the Bible is not about me. It is for me. It is about Jesus. Every word in scripture is pointing my eyes to either my need for a savior or the person who is my savior. Every word in the Bible is pointing me to Christ. Uh, a man named Charles Spurgeon, who's preached to thousands, used to say it like this. I preach the text. I preach the, the, the text of scripture and I make a beeline to Jesus because Everything in scripture is how, to help me see that I either need a savior or that Christ is my savior. And this is what, like this, the, the line from this text to Jesus is a really short one. But beginning with this, he points him to Jesus. He shows him that Christ who came and suffered in our place is the hope for the man. That this, this Jesus who came and lived the per perfect life and died the death I should have died is now the solution to my need. And he preached Jesus, he shared Jesus with this man. And I love what happens. The guy goes, I get it now. What's keeping me from being baptized? And here comes Philip going, nothing. And Philip goes, stop the chariot. There's some water in the desert. I don't know how that happens, but there's some water in the desert. 
let's baptize you. And he takes Philip down. Uh, Philip takes this Ethiopian man, this person who is now a new believer in Jesus, who is repentant of his sin and trusted in Jesus. There's actually a very interesting thing in your text. I want you to notice this, okay? If you have the ESV Bible, I want you to read verse 37 for me real quick. Look down and find it, okay? What's it say? These people skip verse 37. Now, some of you are going, wait, what? Here's what happens, okay? Every once in a while, as you have your Bible, there are moments like this where the Bible itself that you will be reading will skip a verse, and here's why. Uh, the King James Bible very basically was interpreted or translated in 1611, and, and at that point in time, there were the manuscripts of both the Old and New Testament were not as ancient as what we have accessible today. And there's points where it's very obvious that what happened is that you had people who would insert things into manuscripts because there were confusions that had come up, okay? Where they would, people would overinterpret a verse. And so somebody comes in here and says, okay, here's what happens. The way you're saved is by being baptized. And that's not what the text is getting us to, okay? And so what happened is there is actually a verse 37 that's in the King James that was inserted much later time by somebody who wasn't Luke, who they just added kind of like a little addendum and said, the man stopped and repented of his sin and trusted in Jesus. And therefore he said... What's keeping me from being baptized? Because people were looking at it and going, hey, here's how you get saved is by being baptized. They were, they were correcting it. And so what ha what's happened in your text is people have come back since then and said, well, that's not what the original said, and we can make the point in other ways. This text is not arguing that you're saved by being baptized. This is a response of a man who has come to believe what Isaiah 53 said about Jesus. He's found him as a savior because of the faithful witness of Philip. And now he's saying, hey man, how do I prove to the world that I'm a believer in Jesus? I want to be baptized. And now they take him down to water and Philip baptizes him and we're back to Star Trek. Because Philip baptizes the guy and it says when they came up out of the water, he was beamed up. So what happens, right? It's weird. Like, really, God, why did you leave him there to disciple him? Well, God did not have Philip there to disciple this man. God had Philip there to be the evangelist, to share Christ. And next thing you know, Philip just shows up in another town. Like, I want to see this. I want somebody to get the video reel of this one. It wasn't like, you know, and he disappeared like the Star Trek guy. But he just shows up in another town. And, and look what Philip does. I mean, pay attention to it. What's Philip do once he gets out of town? He just keeps finding anybody and telling them about Jesus. He does this all the way until he gets to Caesarea. Luke is pointing out where he ends up. This is another seacoast town that's way further north. But we're going to find out later in the, in, in the book of, of Acts that, that Philip spends the rest of his life in this town called Caesarea. He ends up having four daughters. He lives there. And later in Acts, we'll come back and meet him again. But everywhere he goes, he's just that guy who preaches Christ. Now, here's what happens. As we read this, and it becomes really challenging to us because we go, huh, wait a minute, Mike, I've, are you trying to guilt me and make me feel guilty because I don't share my faith like Philip? Because I am not that person. I am not that guy. I'm, I'm not the person who is willing all the time to stand up and talk to people about Jesus. I am not the person who is able to, to, to do this. I, like, talking to people freaks me out. And some of you are like, I got anxiety this morning because I'm an introvert. And you want me to... Listen, let me tell you a couple of truths that like when we see this story and others like it, how we should understand this as God's people. Because I believe that what's key as we read this text is that God is helping us understand in the life of Philip because Luke is enthralled with Philip and the way he witnesses his, his evangelism, his passion, that we are to see in this what it looks like for us to have an evangelistic culture now. That what we need to, to honestly raise and ask as the people of God is, how do we become a people, not necessarily individuals, but how do we become a people with this sort of evangelistic zeal that we really understand what Christ has done for us and how we make Christ known in our neighborhood? How do we get to where we have the heart of this girl where our, we are weeping over the lostness of people and, and we just want opportunities to sit down with people who may hate us, who may despise us, who may disagree with us, and we just go, man, I just, I just want to sit down and talk to you about Jesus. That's what I want. How do we get there? 
So let me tell you a little bit about the story of Genesis. We love when people get saved. We love when people come to faith in Jesus. We love to have a passion for people coming to know Jesus. But as a church, we put a lot of focus on mission. I really believe in this, that we need to be in our neighborhood. We need to be intentional about getting out and sharing, uh, uh, living our faith before people. We should love this city well. We should serve the city in all kinds of ways. But there are times in our church's story where we have been really faithful at living on mission, but have struggled greatly as God's people, getting to the point where we open our mouths and actually talk about Jesus. And I will tell you, it feels like since COVID, we've just stopped. We, we, we need this Philip story. And so let me take the pressure off. Not everybody's Philip. The story is not go be like Philip. Believe it or not, not everybody's Philip. He is later called, in fact, in Acts, uh, later in Acts chapter, verse 21, verse 8, uh, Luke tells us uh, this is where he's in Caesarea. The next day he departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Luke calls him Philip the Evangelist. And, and that is, first of all, like, what a nickname, Philip the Evangelist. And some of us in the room are like, I, I can't get there. The point is that God doesn't raise up everybody to be this. There's only one Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to stir up to get this with, within him and do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is somebody who's just known for telling the good news to anybody and everywhere, buddy, anywhere they want to go. They're, they're the guy who boldly goes where nobody else has gone. Not everybody is an evangelist, but the Lord does give some people. And what we need to do is we need to nurture and call out the people that are part of our church that are gifted in these ways. We need to do all we can to equip and train and challenge all of you to be passionate, but we need to do all we can to unleash the people in our city who are gifted in this way. Now, watch this. I'm not that guy. In fact, um, in, in the book of Acts, I'm sorry, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Paul is listing these gifts that are related to the way God raises up leaders in the church. And listen to what he says. He gave some uh, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, there it is, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I sometimes feel guilt, and I need to be challenged by the Phillips, but I feel guilt that I am not the evangelist. Now, I, I need to be doing evangelism. I grew up with a dad who is. And, and so I, I am, like, he has shaped me. My dad is... Philip. I grew up in a home where my dad coached high school basketball. My dad coached in an urban high school where he had a mix of, of black and white and even uh, Latino players who played basketball and soccer for him. And every season he would have a couple Saturdays. My dad makes the world's best pancakes, just so you know. I'm not making that up. Sourdough. He's kept a sourdough recipe for as long, like since, since I was this, he's kept a thing of sourdough. He makes the sourdough pancakes and he, he, he would have his team over and, and he was a public high school teacher, but they were on his turf. And if they're coming to his house and eating his pancakes, they're going to hear about his savior. And he, I saw him lead his basketball players to faith in Jesus Christ. I saw basketball players that played for him get baptized in my church. I saw, saw people come to know Jesus. Man, we, we, we never get our meal at a restaurant because my dad will not let the poor waiter go and get our meal. He is having a conversation. We can be walking down the street, and next thing I know, my dad's asking people, hey, tell me, did you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Like, he will talk to anybody and everybody about Jesus. And sometimes it's annoying because I just want to get to my seat at the Cardinal game. But he has modeled before me what it looks like to be free and open about talking about Christ. And he doesn't care who he's talking to. God raises up people like this in his church so that we can see it. And what we, I believe that we do have some people that are gifted. What we need to do is be asking the Lord to raise up these people. And, and so not everybody is this person. But here's what happens, and this is why this text is so important, that sometimes what we do is we look at our, the Phillips of the world, and we go, man, I'm thankful that there's Philip. Now I don't have to do it. 
thankful that there's guys who are gifted in evangelism. And since they're gifted in evangelism, and, and, and sometimes we talk about the evangelist. Like, I grew up in church culture where the evangelist was the guy who preached revivals at your church. And um, those of you who didn't grow up in that culture, maybe you should have, but I'll be honest, revival week when you were a little kid was hard. Because I mean, you're going to hear this guy yell at you all week. And that, those are the people we called the evangelists. But, but the true nature of the evangelist is not the person who stands on stage unnecessarily. Like Billy Graham, yes, he was an evangelist because he went and preached to millions. But really in the local church, the evangelist is the person who is just like Philip. It's not so much that he stands on the stage and preaches Christ. It's that he models in the community and the culture what it looks like to always be boldly going where nobody else will go. It's, it's so not everybody in here is Philip, but we all need Philip. Because the Philips in the world, what they do is they pull us with them. They pull us with them. And so we begin to see what it looks like to share our faith, to come up with simple little ideas, to find simple ways and avenues to be evangelistic people, to share our faith. Because we feel the, 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 the brokenness of our own lives and the need for the gospel. And then we start lifting our chin and feeling the weight of the lostness of our neighbors and the kids who go to these schools. And we come to truly understand that if they don't have somebody tell them about Jesus and they don't repent and believe, they are truly doomed to an eternity apart from Christ. I don't care how good they are, how wonderful neighbors they are. If, you don't, if we don't find a way to feel the weight of lostness in our city. And we need to cry out to God. Like This is one of the outtakes of the sermon. If you're not Philip, will you cry out to God that God will raise up evangelists in this church who can model and lead us? And that's what I, just for a few minutes, I want to talk to you just about some things. It, it, I'm not going to stay long here. I'm going to hit these real quick. Some, some outtakes, some ways that we can nurture a culture of evangelism. And just some things that we already have going on that we're just like, come be a part of these things. Do it, all right? And, and so here, here you go, five things, and really fast. Number one, purposeful prayer. Like, like, I think this starts with us being intentional about praying for people who don't know Jesus, adding this to our prayer list to praying over people who are far from God, uh, making sure like, like, you know, every Friday morning, there's a group of us who gather at the church office. We pray for our city and for our service and for, for God to do a work in us. Join us at, on Friday morning. Come hang out at the office, 645. If not, if you're like, I can't get there at 645, find another group of people. Pray in your community groups, but lift up people who need Jesus. We now have a once-a-month gathering on the first Sunday of the month at 4 o'clock that is just called Pray for the Lost. Find a way to, to, to at least a few times a year be intentional and make it there. Add the names of people that you want to pray for who need Christ in your journal. Add, you know, create it. If you're like, I don't have a journal, create a journal. But write down the names of neighbors of people you're praying for and, and lift them up. There's a man named George Mueller who started praying when he was a young man. He was a follower of Jesus who was a man of great prayer. And he started praying and, and, uh, for uh, five friends. He put five friends' names down and started praying. And he just started praying. And for a while, none of them came to believe in Jesus. Even though he tried to be a witness, tried to share faith, nobody shared. Uh, then two years later, the first person on his list came to believe in Jesus. But for the rest of these guys, he prayed over, over the, his lifetime, three of them came followers of Jesus. But he went to his grave 50 years after he started praying, and two of the guys had not accepted Christ. 52 years after he started praying for them, and two years after he went to be with Jesus, the final man came to place his faith in Jesus. Pray for lost people. It's, it's just God will be faithful. He will speak to us. Second thing I'll challenge us to do is that we need to, be intent, to build intentional relationships. We see this in the story. Philip intentionally rose and went and went to the guy. Who is it that we need to intentionally go and build relationships with? And we don't build the relationships only to share the gospel, but it needs to be part of what we're doing. We as a church have been doing who's your one for a long time. And if you're not, if you have not figured out who your one is, I would challenge you, this is an important first step. Have one person that you're going to intentionally build a relationship with, with the goal of sharing the gospel, praying for them, sharing the gospel. And then start building that relationship. Be intentional about engaging that person in conversations, find ways to interact with them, go play golf with that person, or we've already told you this, take them out to coffee, coffee and we will buy the coffee. 
We have gift cards for you. If you're like, I will take my one or take somebody who doesn't know Jesus or somebody I'm not sure about, and I will take them out and buy coffee. We have gift cards so you can go buy yourself and that person a cup of coffee and have that conversation. But find ways just to go sit and have conversations. Uh, get to know the person. Be intentional about just listening to the person and interacting with them. Uh, and, and find a way to lift your chin. This is the big thing. To lift your chin and see people as loved by God but in need of the gospel, and not just that they're good neighbors who are around. It's one of the things we got to, like, believers in Jesus, we've got to lift our chin and see people and feel the weight of their losses, feel the weight of need. Third, th- third thing I'll challenge you this morning is this. We need to, to, to begin to have loving engagement. Loving engagement. What happens in the story with Philip is he gets past the who are you, what's going on, and he gets to the point where he starts asking questions, interacting with, with issues, helping the man see his own need. And, and that's one of the great things you can do is just learn to be a good question asker. I feel like we sometimes feel like we need to come in and be ready to stand up and tell people about Jesus. Maybe sometimes the best thing is well, while you're having a cup of coffee, just say, tell me, what, what, how do you make sense of the world? When your life is hurting, where do you run to? What's the most important thing in, in, in the world to you? To you, who is Jesus? There are hundreds of really good questions. I would t- tell you that sometimes the best way to get to the point of having a spiritual conversation is to learn to be a good question asker and a really good listener. And, and just seek to engage people by having these conversations and and moving conversations those direction with loving engagement. Seek ways to uh, start and continue these conversations. Once you're engaging people and building relationships, see if they'll do a Bible study with you. See if they'll sit down and, and have a conversation about um, uh, who Jesus is or, or read the, tell them that you'll read the, the book of Mark together. Invite them to church. Just say, hey, I go to church. You want to go with me sometime? I mean, you know, that's just a simple way to move towards engagement, to, to move the relationship to a point where maybe they'll just Hey, yeah, I'll go to church with you sometime and come just invite them, invest in people's lives, invite them to church. Seek ways to have conversations. Ask people how you can pray for them. Like, that's a simple one. So, so now is my confession time. I'm in Anaheim this week at this convention, Southern Baptist Convention. We go to eat at Bubba Gump Shrimp. And we're super, super busy, and our waiter was a guy named Amin. And Amin comes in, Amin was a, Muslim, a very young Muslim man who is working our table. I'm, I'm sitting at this table with a, a, a group of 10 people. And um, as soon as he walks in, we're talking, and one of the guys at the table did something that I've done multiple times. It's a really good idea where you just look at the waiter and, and say, hey, we're, we're followers of Jesus, and we're going to pray over our meal here in just a minute. And while we're praying, we would love to pray for you. Try it sometime. I've had, like, waitresses pull up chairs and break down crying and led people to faith. Actually, it's happened, okay? Doesn't happen most of the time. Most of the time, people are like, yeah, just pray that I have a happy life. And but that's cool, you know. But, but we did this with Amin, and he's like, well, just pray for this and that, and pray that I would find a true path and all this sort of stuff. And he leaves. And he was gone for a really long time. Then our drinks show up, you know. And so we're just like waiting forever, and we're just kind of, we're enjoying the conversation. But then he brings our meals, and he skipped two guys. Like, literally didn't bring their meals. And I was not one of them, which probably means the story would have gone a lot worse if I was, but, you know, <clears throat> but, but I'm sitting there, but, but my buddy Darren was one of the guys who didn't get his meal, and I was just sitting there, and he just doesn't show up, and then he comes back in, he goes, oh, I'm, I made a mistake, I forgot to put your order, so it looks at my friend, I forgot to put your order in, it'll be out in just a minute, and then he leaves, and he's gone forever again, and I'm, I'm like, you know, I want to go to bed, it's, it's, by this time, it's 10 o'clock Anaheim time. It is midnight here. My interior clock was toast. And, and so I wasn't mean, like, sometimes I, I, in the past, I've gone in like guns, but I went to just say, hey, man, I think we've decided not to take the meal, and, and, you know, and then I couldn't find him, so I went and found a manager, and I was just like, we had a couple guys. I wasn't, like, real mean, but a couple guys who didn't get their meal. And as I'm walking back, he catches me. He's just like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like, big old eyes. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm being me who's going, I want to take care of myself and get out of here. This is the way I roll, right? So, so as I'm doing that, I, I, you know, kind of walk through. He beats me there, and, and he is talking, and this guy named uh, Martin, who is part of our group, 
Just like, it's okay. And the next thing I know, Martin is talking to Amin. Amin is weeping as Martin is sharing the gospel with this Muslim man in a restaurant in Anaheim, California. He is weeping over this, saying, I will look into this. I will see. I need this path. Martin gets his name and is following up. Like, and I'm like, dang. I'm awful. Just want to go get in bed. And Jesus, you reminded me again of what it looks like to have a heart for people. This is what it looks like, just engaging people, sharing the gospel with them, and, 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 and making much of Jesus. Have these gospel conversations. If you're uncomfortable, like, I don't know what to say, work on it. Develop this. And then baptism is a big deal. So some of you, the message is, have you met Jesus? If you have, have you been baptized? Because that is your first place as a follower of Jesus to make your witness public. All right, I'm out of time. My goal is to say to us as a church, and I hope this, like, we're, we're light this morning, but let's get this out. We need to pray that God raises up Phillips, and then we need Phillips to rub off, rub off on all of us, don't we? Right, I'm going to say that again, and this is your moment in the sermon to say amen, okay? We need to pray that God will raise up Phillips, and that, that the Phillips in our church will rub off on all of us, Amen. Let's pray that God gives us an evangelistic culture that wants to share the message of Jesus and make much of him with our neighbors and to the nations. That's who we need to be. And, and Philip is a great story that reminds us of the beauty of that. So I'm gonna close with this. We're about to take communion. Let's be reminded of the beauty of what Christ did for us and the depth of your need. But as we take communion, the band is coming up and we take communion, we worship. Let's pray that this moment of remembering the body and blood that Isaiah told us was shed for us as a moment to lift our chin and feel the, the weight of the lostness of the thousands of people in our city who are choosing this morning to do something other than worship Jesus. And unless we go and tell them, how will they know? Lord, I just pray for this moment in me and in our church. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and true. Lord, I do pray that you would raise up people who are gifted as evangelists, that they would, just their sharing of their faith and the way they work in, in this city would become contagious, that you would bring revival and awakening to our city. But Lord, I pray that it would, for all of us, Lord, that, that we would be more intentional about sharing Jesus with our neighbors. Lord, help us. Like, I just pray that every person in here will have their one, that we'll start with one person, and you will help us over the next couple of months, weeks, and months to find ways about being intentional, about building those relationships, and about investing the gospel in the lives of people. And thank you for the model of this that is in, in the story here and the model we saw in Sweet Shelby, and I pray that you would give um, fruit to her witness. And I do pray that there is a day well, she, she'll be able to sit down with the man who shot and killed her father and tell him about the love of Christ. In your name I pray, amen.